hppodcraft.com. Quite a good scene, isn't it? Greetings, ghouls and ghasts, and welcome once again to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast here at hppodcraft.com. I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. Last month, we covered Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein. (laughs) There was so much to talk about that we decided to do a wrap-up show with a special guest. Today, we are lucky to be joined by annotator, editor extraordinaire, Leslie S. Klinger. Thanks for joining us, Les. My pleasure. Leslie was gracious enough to come on the show a couple years ago to discuss his new annotated H.P. Lovecraft, which is a beautiful tome full of unspeakable secrets. (laughs) If you haven't purchased it, then you really disappointed Lackey on a personal level. Yes. Gosh, thanks, guys. The good news is that second volume will be out next year. What? Is that for real? That's for real. Calling it tentatively uh, something clever like new annotated H.P. Lovecraft, Beyond the Mythos. Oh. It's another 25 stories. Some of the ones that people said, why did you leave that out for the first volume? Well, we had to cut some things. I know that it was very difficult for you to select the stories for that first annotated. It was. But now we get to do uh, The Outsider, Rats in the Wall. Yeah. It's basically done. We're editing it. It'll be out, uh, I think, next October. October of 18. Sweet. Mr. Klinger, of course, came to prominence due to his Sherlock Holmes expertise and has produced a number of annotated Sherlock volumes as well as the annotated Sandman by Neil Gaiman yeah. and the new annotated Dracula, which I treasure I love daily it. and dearly. I would encourage you to check out all of his work. Uh, we will link out to his site in the show notes. Most important to this discussion, Les will be releasing the new annotated Frankenstein this summer. It includes an introduction by Guillermo del Toro and an afterward by feminist scholar Anne K. Mellor. Uh, with over 200 illustrations and nearly one thousand annotations, Klinger illuminates every hidden dimension of the first truly modern myth. And we can expect that to drop on July 25th, is that right? Yes. Excellent. Well, let's talk Frankenstein. So one of the things I wanted to do in the book that nobody had really done before was to present sort of side by side the 1818 text and the 1831 text. So the main text is the 1818 text, but there are extensive footnotes showing how the text changed in yeah. the 1831 edition. I was curious, what are some of the motivations uh, of, of her doing the changes? Well, there's actually two others interesting texts. One is a two-volume edition that her father edited that came out in 1825, and there's something known as the Thomas text, which was her sort of first draft of revisions of the 1831 edition. But by 1831, Percy was dead, so she's a single woman sort of making it alone in the world, and she's older. I mean, she's basically now a 35-year-old instead of a 19-year-old mm-hmm. when uh, she did the 18, 18 text, rough numbers. So there's a different perspective. The 1831 text is in some ways more moral. She is more forgiving of Victor. Victor is seen more of sort of a creature of destiny. It's like not so much his fault anymore. So there's some significant changes. Now, some of it also may be that when she revised it, She and Percy, it's very clear, collaborated on the 1818 text. I reject the arguments that Percy wrote it. I mean, that's ridiculous. She wrote most of it, but they were a very collaborative couple. They constantly read each other's writings, and each of them sort of rewrote the others. 
So certainly the 1818 text was collaborative, but by 1831, she basically got to say to herself, I don't like what Percy did here. I'm changing it. Hmm. So just to backtrack for a moment, what's your personal experience with Frankenstein? How did the annotation project come up? Well, I wanted to do Frankenstein the minute that I finished Dracula because if you talk about the iconic larger-than-life figures of the 19th century. You're talking about Holmes, Dracula, and the creature. Mm -hmm. So it seemed obvious to me that I ought to be annotating Frankenstein. It wasn't obvious to Norton. Um, (laughs) It took me a few years to convince them that I should do it. And what finally clinched it was the upcoming anniversary. I mean, next year is the 200th anniversary of publication, and they thought that it would get appropriate attention. It's interesting. I mean, their view on many of these books is they're looking for books that sell well. And Dracula does sell well. Frankenstein, not so well. Interesting. So they were skeptical. I'd love to see them as patrons of the art, and they're a wonderful publisher to work with. But they actually, surprisingly, want to make money. (laughs) So they look for books that they think will do tolerably well. Frankenstein was obvious to me, but it took a while to sort of get it into the pipeline. You know, interestingly, my love of science fiction long predates Sherlock Holmes. I started to read science fiction when I was probably eight years old, reading Mm -hmm. Heinlein Juveniles and uh, Asimov Juveniles. Sherlock Holmes was a new thing that I discovered in law school. So, of course, I had to do Frankenstein. Because of your love of science fiction. Yeah. Now, in promo materials for this book, you have called the book both a thoughtful examination of the very nature of knowledge, as well as the first truly modern myth, which Chris just said. Can you expand on what you mean by those descriptions? Well, I think I quoted Brock Aldis in the introduction where I said something like, for every thousand people who know the movie, there's, you know, one who's read the book, or maybe ten who've read the book. The book is considerably different from the movie. The book is much more serious. The book is much more about knowledge and the responsibility that comes with knowledge. It's about parenting. It's about putting, what should I say, people first. Mm. So the subtitle of the book is Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not Prometheus the bringer of fire. This is Prometheus Plasticator, as he's known. He created a, a race of beings. He, a titan, created a race of homunculi from clay. Mm-hmm. And so that is, of course, similar to what Victor did. And and Victor is seen as a Promethean, someone who puts knowledge and achievement first, as does Robert Walton, the narrator of the story. And this is opposed to, you know, what Mary Shelley was arguing sort of should be the true values. The true values should be about family, about society, with personal achievement and and advancement of science really second secondary to those things mm. um, but we see that she creates this story of a creature and i call it a modern myth because it just took on such power i mean it, it, it basically became an image that was adopted in many many other contexts the, the book was immensely successful in various forms as a stage play Mm -hmm. Uh, Plus, the idea of the creature we see almost right away appearing in political cartoons, political speeches, and so on, Mm. as the idea that there's something that's been created that someone else is not taking responsibility for. So uh, one of the things about this story is that who's telling the story shifts a lot. The the narrative. uh, Yes. First it's Walton, then it's Victor, and then at times it's 
it's the monster, and then it's... Then it's the creature, then it's Delacy's, then it's Safi, yes. and so on. So yeah. we have a, someone's called it a Chinese box. We have all of these interwoven narratives with one within another within another. It's, a, it's very Neil Gaiman-like. There's a storyteller telling a story about a storyteller, and who's telling a story about a storyteller, and so on. Why do you think that she did that? Like, what was her, her reasoning for telling the story in that way? I think part of it is... As in the case of Dracula, where we have newspaper clippings and journal entries, it was to lend a verisimilitude to the story. Yeah. Um, if all these people are telling the story, it's harder to dismiss it as the demented ravings of one person. Right. And we have sort of perspectives given by these different people. And, and, and each of the narrators is clearly a different perspective. So, I mean, I think she did it to lend a verisimilitude to the story and, and to give it greater depth. One thing that Chad and I talked about when we were discussing the show was the, the idea also of the unreliable narrator, that we're hearing most of this from Victor, and he's retelling the stories. And sometimes it almost seems like maybe Victor's sort of making himself out to be a little bit tougher than he maybe really was. Of course, more of a victim than he really was. And, and of course, actually, we're not hearing it from Victor. We're hearing it from Walton, Walton yes. telling us what Victor told him. Right. We don't hear Walton's voice very often, but a couple of places there are asides by Victor speaking directly to Walton, mm-hmm. um, where he sort of interrupts the tale. And later we have Victor telling what the creature told him. And then we have the creature telling Victor, telling Walton what Safi related. So we have, we have all these perspectives. Yes, they shift and they all are a little bit unreliable in the sense that we have to understand none of them are objective narrators. You know, it's interesting to see how the book gets tagged as science fiction, and I mean, I'm guilty of it myself, or horror, and yet it's so much more than that. It's interesting, my granddaughter just read it in school. She's uh, She read it as a sophomore, and uh, we had a lively discussion about some of these different points of view. Clearly, A, it's being taught, which is wonderful, yeah. and yeah. B, it's being taught as much more than just entertainment. That is wonderful, because yeah. it's literature, you know, and it's about so much of the human condition. Now, real quick, I made some jokes in the last few episodes about following the Frankenstein diet, <laughs> which is all nuts and berries and roots, but I did have a serious question about this. The monster at one point says to Victor, my food is not that of man. I do not destroy the lamb and the kid to glut my appetite. Acorns and berries afford me sufficient nourishment. So, he's a vegetarian. He's a self-proclaimed vegetarian. Is that a random decision? No. Percy was a militant vegetarian, uh-huh. uh, Percy Shelley, and uh, wrote a book about it. And this was kind of a thing among the romantic, the early romantics, that the vegetarianism was in some ways a kind of a rejection of science and embracing of nature and mm. so on. So... It was, it was an important movement at that time. And uh, as I said, Percy, I'm not sure that Mary herself was a vegetarian, but uh-huh. certainly living with one, she didn't get a lot of meat. Sure. <laughs> well, I think that the treatment of sentient beings obviously was flying around that household. Absolutely. So, well, that kind of ties into my next question, because illness is a big part of the story. And uh, Victor got stressed, and when he got stressed, he got ill. His mother died of the illness. His father died after hearing the news of Elizabeth's death. What is that 
about? I mean, I understood that lots of people died uh, of disease at the in, the in that time, but it feels like that there's something more behind that. Well, of course, keep in mind that Mary Shelley's mother died in childbirth, so mm. there's certainly significant echoes of that throughout the book. The loss of a parent, the loss to illness. I mean, she died of puerperal fever. And Percy and Mary were both fascinated by the state of medicine and what was going on there. I, I don't think there's anything particularly special about disease. I, I didn't really explore that theme. That's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. But certainly, those sudden deaths were very much on her mind. Mm-hmm. And, and keep in mind, she also lost several children. Right. As a matter of fact, Chris and I were emailing back and forth, and one of our listeners had written in to talk about an annotation from, I think it was the um, the Essential Frankenstein. And there was an annotation there where they had an an entry from her journal in 1815 that said she dreamed that my baby came to life again, that it had only been cold and that we rubbed it before the fire and it lived, awaken and find no baby. Now this is something that I hadn't, I wasn't privy to. Very powerful image that stuck with her and uh, very much on her mind as she was writing Frankenstein. Well it's heartbreaking, isn't it? That maybe this whole story came out of wanting to bring a stillborn baby back to life. And we have to remember how old she is. I mean, my God, this is a this is a teenager yeah. writing this book. Yeah. When I heard that quote after reading this book and doing our work on it, it felt like there was something about that. Some kind of worry that her baby that had died, maybe it hadn't died and it was out there in the world and it didn't have her. Yes. Kind of that kind of feeling. And then that's almost like what well, that is really what this story is about. Of course, a parentless child, very much. So she's raised without a mother. You know, she has these feelings about her own child. Mm-hmm. And yes, she put it all into the book, consciously well, or unconsciously. We spent a lot of time in our coverage talking about parents and being good parents or bad parents. Victor's a, a bad parent. We made fun of him a lot for being a jerk, kind of stupid. And I'd say the two big moments that stand out for for us were his complete abandonment of the creature, just waiting around until it wandered off instead of doing anything about it. And later, he stupidly thinks that when the monster says, I'll be with you on your wedding night, despite a million indications otherwise, he thinks the monster is going to kill him instead of his betrothed, Elizabeth. So how can we account for such a dunderheaded character? Are his flaws merely in service to the story, or is there more to it than that? Well, there are some who suggest that there's some of Mary's father in this as well. Um, Mary's father, with whom she had a, what shall I say, an intellectual relationship. She worshipped him, but in today's terms, he wasn't a hugger. (laughs) You know, he was... He was a a distant parent who regarded Mary in some respects as almost like a science experiment. I'm going to educate her this way, and we'll see what happens. So I think some of that is reflected in the relationship between Victor and the creature, that this is, in a sense, sort of revenge on her father, you know, making it clear that she didn't like that kind of parenting. Interesting. Despite that Mary was very well-read, extremely well-read. You know, when you're 19 years old, you don't have a depth of life experience to draw on. So Mm. it's not unnatural that she would turn to her own family and her own childhood experiences to put them in the book. 
uh, mm-hmm. because she didn't have a lot of other experience. I want to talk about uh, Safi a bit. Now, she seemed to show a little bit of feminist subversion, at least I thought so. Yes, but, but the other char- absolutely. But the other characters seem pretty subservient to the men in the story. Certainly, and there's been a great deal made out of this by feminist scholars. This mm-hmm. is now a book that is routinely taught in feminine studies, gender studies, etc. Mm-hmm. Certainly, Safi is uh, a role model of how to be a stand-up woman. And, of course, you know, name Safi is is a pun on the word wisdom. Uh, oh. Sophia, wisdom. She's almost an allegorical figure mm. in this book. I don't think it's an accident by any means. Do you think there are any other feminist indicators that we're maybe missing that are within the story? Oh, sure. I mean, you have other strong characters. I mean, Elizabeth is a strong character. Even Justine, to some extent, is strong. The women come off pretty well in this book. I mean, Elizabeth, unfortunately, is a passive victim at the end. Yeah. But she's tough. I mean, remember, she does something that generally women are not allowed to do. She appears in court, testifies on behalf of Justine. That is not a customary role for a woman, who in many cases were in many societies were excluded from court. Yeah, I mean, Mary, I mean, certainly a strong self-image portrayed her women by and large as strong people. Now, there are references to Middle Eastern and Islamic culture in the book several times, uh, certainly in the character of Safi and her father, and in also with the literature that Henry is studying. Say Islamic, that's not quite true. Oh, well, good. Correct me, please. Safi is Christian. Safi's Christian, right? And her father is... Uh, is her father is... And he's a villain. That's right. I think this is more of the the otherness mm. element here, that we have the creature being other, but we also have Safi's father being other. And there's been a great deal of academic commentary on, on exactly what you're putting your finger on, that this is the otherness of the Far East. Although there's some discussion in... I've forgotten which text, which version it is, that Henry Clerval is studying uh, Persian literature and all that. And it's very comforting to Frankenstein when he studies it. He actually makes some favorable comments that this literature is somewhat uh, more soothing than, you know, the people in Middle Eastern literature just enjoy the sun. They don't have comment to make on it, right? So it's a dig on English literature that it's so stoic and uh, warlike. I think there's sort of little messages from Mary that maybe the other is not should not be just shunned or pushed away mm-hmm. the other should be examined and there may be redeeming features to even the other mm. this is deep stuff I, you know yeah I, <laughs> I, I felt at times like can't we just have fun <laughs> <laughs> well you must feel like that with every subject that you tackle right i was an english major back in uh, college and this annotation drew more in my english majorhood than my let's have fun but there was I tried to do some of both. I always say, look, I'm not an academic. I, I'm trying to increase the reader's enjoyment of these texts, not teach them the great lessons of structure. And I'm certainly not a modern English major into deconstructionism and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So Sure. Yeah, there's a lot of religious overtones in this book. And I was curious if you know where Mary Shelley stood religiously when she wrote the book and then also later on in life. I think she was pretty firmly atheistic. She was into deism and that sort of thing, that this is more sort of the watchmaker uh, who wound the watch and then walked away. I, I think she and Percy shared that philosophy. And while there are religious elements to the story, I don't think she is particularly religious. I don't think she sees uh, religion as the redeeming way out here. Yeah. It's, it's more humanistic. It's basically, you know, we got to take care of each other. 
which is exactly what Percy fails to do. Hmm. Uh, excuse me, Victor fails to do. <laughs> An interesting slip. Well, <laughs> uh, to follow up on that, we are actually approaching the creation of sentient life if we haven't already done it. And, uh, you know, whether this is AI or... It's interesting. And Mellor's afterward, although it's not really her field, goes on a good deal about science and cloning and the responsibility that comes with that. So it's certainly not a theme. I mean, it's a theme commonly pulled out of this book. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's something that we're going to have to confront pretty quickly. And I think that the book takes on so much more significance knowing that, right? Do you wander away from your creation or do you, you know, how do you morally take care of it? Right. Take responsibility. I mean, if you're going to sum up the book in one sentence, it's if you're going to be a parent, take responsibility. Yeah, I think that's what we walked away with, yeah. right, Chris? I mean, yeah, you know, we were trying to figure out if this was about, you know, not tampering in God's domain or whether it was about taking responsibility, and we ended up on the side of responsibility. Right. I don't think that it is about, notwithstanding the film version, this is not about, oh, don't mess with those kinds of things. That's Lovecraft's thing, of course. But this isn't don't mess. This is, it's okay to mess as long as you do it in a humanistic, responsible fashion. Right. I don't think she thinks that Walton or Victor are misguided in pursuing the discoveries that they're after. Mm -hmm. Walton, who is seeking to find the Northwest Passage, and Victor trying to discover the secrets of life. I don't think she thinks that's irresponsible at all. I think she thinks that it just needs to be done responsibly. Mm -hmm. The best example of that is that Victor walks away from the monster, and the monster naturally is good. It takes a lot of really bad things to happen to him before he starts to perform evil acts. And if Victor, by making him, had done something wrong, the monster would have came out, you know, evil and killing things right away. This isn't an abnormal brain. (laughs) (laughs) Abnormal. By the way, I I should mention that I was delighted to include as an appendix to the book a short interview that I did with Mel Brooks. Oh, oh fantastic. Nice. Young Frankenstein is such a wonderful film. It is. It's the best. Genius. It's the best. Uh, so, na- Nature is used a lot to show the moods and the feelings of the characters in the story. Also, the creature thrives in nature, where humans need protection from it. Well, this is very Rousseauian. This is very much the philosophy of the French Revolution and the Romantics. Yes. That nature is where we can find peace, harmony, the great lessons of the world. She and Percy both very much believed in that theme, read widely among the early romantics and had many of them as friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and certainly this fits very squarely into that tradition. Yeah. I mean, again, sort of going back to the writing process, how this book came about, being a, uh, an economical writer, she also worked <laughs> into the book a lot of places that she and Percy had just visited. They did a a trip through France and along the Rhine and then Switzerland, and that's a book called Six Weeks Trip or Six Weeks Journey that she and Percy wrote together that was kind of a diary of their trip. And a lot of the material from that shows up in Frankenstein. Uh, Why not? That was something I wondered about because these locations seem very specific and she seemed to have a lot of knowledge about them. And I was wondering, as an English woman, why she would decide to set her story in Austria and and Ingolstadt and and then up to Scotland. Right, write what you know. Yep. (laughs) It's a little Lovecraftian, in fact, to, to work that travelogue into the novel, right? Absolutely. Now, this book really seems to me like a breakthrough a man creating life, but there must have been other stories or novels that 
contained this idea with which Mary might have been familiar or Percy. Are, are there any pre-Frankenstein Frankenstein stories? Well, certainly. The golem. Uh, the golem. And oh, yeah. she, she, she knew the legends of the golem. And there had been, I think, a couple of early books about the golem. I don't, I don't recall any other novels about, you know, creating life. But certainly creating life was very much on the minds of scientists who were arguing about what was life. Uh, was it some sort of magnetic or electrical force? At this point, science was intensely interested in this. And, and some of Percy and Mary's friends were involved in that debate and experimentation going on. She was also, of course, very aware of Aldini and the electri- and Galvani and the experiments with electricity mm-hmm. that were being conducted. So her inspiration for the theme came partly from the real world, science. And partly, I think, she, as I said, she knew the legend of the golem, the idea of a creature made from mud that was vivified by a Hebrew symbol pasted on the creature's neck that was a a special mystical word that brought the creature to life. Mm -hmm. It it seems like Victor and the monster become more like each other as the story goes on. Oh, of course. Yes, indeed. What do you think that is about? Well, there are those who suggest that they are really doppelgangers, that Victor and the monster share many characteristics. Actually, there's there's a very interesting theory, I think it's a little off-base, that says the creature doesn't exist. It's really just the other personality of Victor, that he's a split personality, and the things that the creature does are actually done by Victor himself, sort of in his other mode. I don't buy that, but I think it's absolutely clear that they become more and more like each other and share many characteristics. Not necessarily the good things. I mean, they they sort of take on each other's worst characteristics. Well, yeah, they sort of devolve into the same beast. Yes. Where they both start very virtuous and very kind and and, and uh, it just, they keep making each other worse and worse individuals. Right. And so, in a way, this is symbolically Victor's own struggle with his own personality and trying to reshape himself into a better person, which ultimately he fails to do. You know what I thought the other day that Victor should have done is uh, I think when the creature says, I'll be there on your wedding night, when he shows up and he's about to strangle Elizabeth, Victor bursts into the room and he says, did you look at the wedding? Did you look at the marriage certificate? Uh-huh. And then the creature looks and he married the creature. So the creature's <laughs> got to kill himself. He goes, what? It's me? You married me? And that was his trick. Well, you and you and some of the academics. You know, yeah, there's some wonderful. I mean, believe me, there, there's one of the great. Um, things that I discovered about Frankenstein is the same that I discovered about Dracula, which is sort of like, if you have a theory about anything, Uh you can probably find material in Frankenstein to support it. So just like Dracula is seen as a story about the role of women, a story about uh, the Eastern European invasion, Mm -hmm. about the Irish uprising, about Jews, about all sorts of things. Similarly, Frankenstein gets interpreted that way to sort of every theory that you can think of you can find support in Frankenstein it's a very rich and plastic material and there are a number of deep psychological analyses of the book again because I'm not an academic I did not set out in the annotations to sort of indicate all of the possible interpretations of every sentence and so on Um, I tried to indicate sort of the existence of these interpretations 
And there's an appendix that surveys the academic interpretations. Mm. But it's it's not my thing. Last question here. Obviously, the book has been adapted a gajillion times directly. It's indirectly influenced so many more things from Blade Runner to Westworld. I was thinking about weird science uh, the other day. <laughs> I, I'm sure you have some favorite adaptations, uh, but aside from the adaptations, what are your favorite descendants of the book as well? Well, certainly Young Frankenstein. Uh, yeah. mean, that's one of my very favorite movies, Yes. period. Uh, yes, you know, awesome. Not just adaptations to this, but just great, great stories. You know, that's a tough question. I, there's so many powerful science fiction films. Certainly, I love the whole Alien series mm-hmm. um, very much. I really like the whole series of films, all four of the Alien movies, plus Prometheus, and can't wait for the new Prometheus one coming out. So you liked Prometheus, huh? <laughs> oh, I, I didn't say I, I liked the whole story. I find it really, there's very few serious science fiction films. That's just true. not enough. Yeah. Yeah. Ex Machina is a brilliant film. Yeah, agreed. Um, Which is very in line with this book, right? I mean, that's about uh, creating life and how do we deal with it. Uh, the thing about that movie that's so fascinating is that I think the creature in that movie is smarter than the creators. Absolutely. And I, I just finished watching, I'm, I'm in, I mean, to talk about other films you may spit on, I love all the Terminator films. And just finished watching mm-hmm. last night, my wife and I watched for the second time the Sarah Connor Chronicles, uh, mm. which I think is a vastly underrated TV Me series. Me too. I really love that show. Very, very love the show. Great writing. And of course, it's got some of the same themes uh, yeah. about artificial intelligence and, and the cyborgs. And are they human? Do they share? Will you join us? Yeah. You know, very deep stuff. I really love the Terminator series as well. And, <laughs> and Prometheus actually has a lot to offer. There's some really fantastic ideas in there. So sorry I was... Uh, you know, I think I've been reading Frankenstein too long, so I'm turning into a jerk like Victor. But we're about to, to close up here, so is there anything that uh, you'd like to talk about we didn't cover, or anything else more you can tell us about the new annotated Frankenstein? Well, the book has a long introduction with a great deal, by me, a great deal of biographical uh, information about Mary Shelley and Percy, which is very important to understanding the book. That's why I went on at some length about her uh, her life and her development. Mm-hmm. And as I said, contrasting the different texts, I very much like to study texts because I think they give us insights into the creative process and understanding the choices that the artist makes um, in the final product. So there's a good deal of that. But at the same time, I've tried to include some fun. You know, so there's a picture somewhere in the book of uh, Frankenberry cereal and, you know, things like that. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Did you ever eat that, Chris? Yeah, well, you bet I did. I loved it. And a whole appendix listing just about every one of the important films. I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about between Holmes, Dracula, and Frankenstein, the three most, uh, three of the top five most filmed characters of all time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the films are certainly a great deal of fun. While you were surveying the novel, was there anything that was surprising to you that came up? Certainly. I mean, you know, just the depth of it. I, too, I probably read it first when I was a kid and got very little out of it and then knew the movies well. But to go back and read it and and realize what tremendous depth there were in the book was a very pleasant surprise. Hmm. And I think that that's how we felt as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's one other project that I should mention since you were kind enough to talk about Lovecraft, which is Watchmen. The annotated edition. That will come out in November. Whoa. Get out! I didn't know you were doing that. I am. Uh, <laughs> DC, 
it's funny. After I finished Sandman, I was out visiting with the folks at DC and said, so, you know, my dream project would be to do Watchmen. And six months later, they said, yeah, let's do that. Wow. Well, good on them. Those editors at DC know what's up. That's a that's a fantastic project, and I'm looking forward to grabbing that one. Now, uh, the new annotated Frankenstein will be out again July 25th. Is that what we're looking at? That's the pub date. And you can pre-order it, probably? Yes. On, uh, on I think there are a bunch of links on my website. My website is Leslie S, as in Sam, Klinger.com. And there are links to the usual suspects, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, etc. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. And My pleasure, guys. Hope to see you guys at Necronomicon this summer. Oh, yeah. I think that uh, we are going to be there. You're going to be there for sure? I will be there. Great. Excellent. And with that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. <laughs>